Um, yes, yeah, so this afternoon I want to talk about Indian students at Oxford University before the Second World War. More generally, um, some of the less well-known students, some of the unremarkable students, as Amitav Ghosh mentioned, and really discuss and question how one can trace and find out more about the lives of these unknown Indians. Um, and you see this graph of Indians at Oxford from 1910 to 1938. It's compiled from uh, government records. You can see that there's a quite a sizable number of Indian students across the period, um, up to 150 in 1922, down to just over 40. Um, so an average of about 50, 60 every year. Um, and Indian students were the largest foreign contingent of students at British universities in the early 20th century, more than Australians, Canadians, or any other um, country. And one of the reasons for this was because of the, the great link between British education and India. Um, any Indian who went in this period, at the height of empire, who wanted to rise to one of the highest ranks of administration, of law, of education, had to have a British qualification, a British degree. Um, and so increasingly, Indians came over to Britain to compete with British people. Um, and the opening up of the Indian civil service exams in the 1850s allowed Indians to compete alongside British people to join the highest ranks of the civil service administration in India. Um, and they could make use of the Indian Institute, which we, Alika mentioned is opposite, um, which was designed primarily for British candidates for the ICS, but also Indians could make use of it. So the vast majority of Indians at Oxford in this period um, intended to join the ICS, the, the civil service. Having said that, basically all Indian students joined the Majlis Society. Now, the Majlis Society was an Indian student society um, founded in 1896. It was a debating society for Indian students modelled on the Oxford and Cambridge unions where they'd have political debates um, and, you know, on the kind of model of this house believes in a certain motion and the Indian students would debate upon this. And the Majlis Society in this period invariably discussed Indian politics, nationalist politics, the role of India within empire, um, the relationship between India and Britain, and invariably all the Indian students would um, agree that um, India's position within empire at the time was not um, the best position to be in. Although, and so although a large proportion of Indians did join the Indian civil service, they were loyal as such to the British Empire, they were collaborating with the British. Um, in Oxford, they were able to debate and discuss nationalist ideas. And I would argue that a society like the Majlis brought Indians from different regional and cultural backgrounds together and was one of the first times that they could constitute um, the idea of an Indian community and the idea of India as a whole nation um, and not just um, something, you know, just the province that they were aware of before they came out here. <clears throat> Having discussed the Majlis very briefly, what I want to talk to you about today is um, how we can find out more about the interaction and relationship between Indians and British students in this period, and, and really raise the question whether we can find out more about um, this interaction, was there any interaction, and what are some of the traces of some of this relationship and um, collaboration between Indian and British students. Um, 
Okay, so I want, I want to just talk about um, uh, my experiences in, in finding out a bit more about some of these students here at Oxford. And with a university like Oxford, with a college system, one naturally goes to the colleges because it's a smaller community. The colleges are the ones that keep the records of the lives of their students. Um, and it's much easier to get a sense of what um, the students were doing from the colleges. Um, as Judith Brown has done in Windows into the Past with Balliol, we can build up institutional history through the lives of the individuals within it. And she has discovered between 1853 and 1947, there were 88 Indians at Balliol. Now, Balliol had a reputation for being particularly favorable to Indians. They had one or two Indians every year. Um, so that's quite a high number. But what I want to discuss is how she... How did she get that number of 88 Indian students at Balliol between 1853 and 1947? And what she did was, she went back to Balliol College, which was her college where she works, and looked at their college registers. And Balliol is one of the few colleges which has kept printed college registers of all their students. And these college registers are, di are divided by year, so what year a college student joined, um, and they're alphabetical. Um, of the, all the students, obviously men at Bailey all this time. So you've got the year, let's just make something up, 1900. You, you've got the, the, the surnames alphabetically. And then under each student's name, it will say, for Balliol, it will say, um, obviously, what year, they, what degree, what course they're taking. It would say, finally, what qualification they receive from the degree, i.e. first class, second class, third class, whatever. Um, any college or university honours they might have got while they were here, perhaps they're a member of a sporting team, perhaps they're a president of a particular society. Um, and so to go back, wh and where they were born in, for Balliol registers, and then some of the position, the jobs that they took up after they left Balliol. And th these, this information has been compiled because the Balliol Alumni Office has been particularly good at keeping in contact with their students and kept up a regular correspondence. So former students have told them, you know, I've now got this job. And so they've managed to note it down in their college registers. So having talked about Balliol and Judith Brown's research, I want to talk about my experiences at, at St. John's um, College. We can go across there. Why St. John's, you might ask? I have no link with St. John's. I didn't study there or anything. Um, and the primary reason why I'm going to be talking about St. John's today it's because the archivist was very, very kind to me. Um, he answered all my confused, garbled emails. Um, and St. John's has a very rich archive um, and has kept um, similar registers to the ones that Balliol kept, but with a slightly, um, slightly different information. Um, so just these are my notes that I made at St. John's when I was there of the various Indian students um, that I found. And they had about uh, one student every two or three years. Um, what I should um, kind of raise here, which is one of the big um, problems or questions about looking through these college registers, is, um, as I said, it's, it's divided by a year and it's, it's just alphabetical names of people. So one has to just look for a name that sounds vaguely Indian or, uh, you know, something a bit exotic oriental. Um, you know, and it obviously depends on the person who's looking through the registers, I would like to think that I would 
be fairly familiar with what an Indian surname is. Um, but, you know, there are some surnames which, um, you know, like a Khan, they might not be Indian, they might come from the Middle East, they might come from Central Asia. So one has to be careful um, with, when you're looking through these, through these registers about what you automatically perceive as an Indian name. Um, and in St. John's, it didn't, it didn't say where the students were born. It only said um, what their previous schooling was. So another question is raised is what happens if there's a very English sounding name like Jones or Smith, but who was educated in Delhi before they came to Oxford? Does one count that as an Indian student because they were coming from India, or does one automatically disregard them um, because one would assume that they had British parents? Um, and that's just, you know, a question, really. Um, and so there are various students in St. John's, but in, um, you know, as I said, once every one or two or three years. But in 1922, there were two Indian students at St. John's. And I'll just read out what I wrote, what I noted down at the time um, from the college registers on these two students. Okay. Jaipal Singh, or Ishwadas Jaipal Singh, 1922-26, to 1927-28 at St. John's. Son of A.P. Singh, priest and farmer. Educated at St. Paul's English School, Runchy, and St. Augustine School, Canterbury. Fourth, PPE and BA, 1926, MA, 1929. Football 11, 1925-6. Hockey 11, 1922 and onwards till 1926. Debating Society, Secretary and President. Member of the Essay Society. Uh, member of the University Hockey Team versus Cambridge, 1924, 25 and 26. Um, and then it uh, mentions various jobs that he took up. He was Commandant Assistant of the Royal Dutch Shell, GP, London and Calcutta. Commercial Master of Akrimata College in Gold Coast. Vice Principal of Rajkumar College in Raipur. Um, and then Member of Constitu Constituent Assembly of India. Married one son and two daughters. And the second Indian student also who joined in 1922 was another Singh. Modern Gopal Singh, 1922-24, born 8th of February, 1892. Son of M. Singh, Zamanda, educated at Punjab University. Diploma of Education, Vacation Course, 1923. A second class degree in English in, for BA, 1924, MA, 1930. A member of the Essay Society, and then Professor of English, Punjab University, 1929, Vice Principal of the Government Training College, Punjab University, 1938, and he died in 1950 in partition riots. Now, I'm not sure how many of you have heard of the Essay Society, but I sadly had never heard of that before. So I asked Mike Rawdon, who is, who's the archivist of St. John's, immediately, um, why have we got two Singhs from different parts of India in 1922 who are both members of the Essay Society? What is this Essay Society? Um, and this is the minute book of this Essay Society, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, so, if you haven't already guessed, the Essay Society was the society for undergraduate students at St. John's where um, students would read out their essays to each other and discuss them. Um, I know we all, Oxford has a reputation for being SWATs, but I think this is like really going too far. Um, so, luckily for me and for us today, St. John's has kept the minute books of this Essay Society. Um, and so scrolling through, I, you know, they both Jaipal Singh and Gopal Singh joined in June 1923, and they attended various essays by other people, one on Matthew Arnold, one on the devil, one on English press. 
Um, but here in, on May 18, 1924, we see M. Gopal Singh, the one from Punjab, giving a paper on Rabindranath Tagore. I'll just read out what it says about his paper in case you can't read it. In public business, Mr. M. Gopal Singh read a paper on Rabindranath Tagore. He gave the society an exceptionally interesting account of the poet's life and works, and a very vivid description of the Indian scenery and the tropical sun and storms around which his poetry centers. <laughs> After the paper, the usual discussion followed, during which conversations strayed in a pleasant way from Kipling's works to the art of peasant homes, from Indian craft work in ivories, to Indian jugglers, from jungle snakes with two mouths, one at each end, to Kashmir shawls and sculpture. And Mr. Gopal Singh took the opportunity of giving the society a most able survey of Indian thought and customs. <laughs> now, automatically, there are a number of stereotypes of India coming out. Even Tagore is almost a stereotype of India at this time. Kipling, jungle, jungle snakes, Kashmir shawls. Um, but to defend Singh and the, and the, the members of the Essay Society, um, at least here was someone who was giving at least some idea of India to his British colleagues. Um, I mean, and that's all I really want to say about that, it's just, it's up there. Um, I now want to return to Jai Singh, the other guy, who, if you were listening when I was calling out all his various achievements, he was um, a member of the Hockey 11. Um, and those of you who've seen the display outside will have seen um, a picture of Jaipal Singh in the middle of the St. John's Hockey 11 in 1925. He was a member of the Hockey 11 from 1922 to 25 at St. John's. And this is one, um, the first, first year that he was a member of the Hockey Society, sorry, just the hockey team, the first hockey team. Um, and we focus on him here. Um, Indian students often joined university and college sports teams. Um, we have a cricketer outside as well, um, and famously Nawab Fataldi, who was at Balliol, um, played for Balliol cricket team and played for the university cricket team at Cambridge and kept the record for the highest runs scored in the Oxford-Cambridge um, match, and which was only just broken in 2005. Um, Jaipal Singh, who's playing hockey, who played hockey for St. John's and for the university, went on to captain the Indian hockey team who won gold at Amsterdam in, 1928, in the 1928 Olympics. Um, but what I want to do, just quickly raise about the issue I want to raise about this picture. Um, and if you haven't already seen the picture outside of the cricket team, which is from University College. Um, Having been at St. John's, I got very excited. I thought, you know, they have a very rich archive. We found these photos of Jaipal Singh, found the Society. I, I, I asked various other colleges who they had similar information. And very few colleges have kept even college registers, let alone um, photos or Essay Society minute books. Um, but University College does have, a, have, you know, a stack of an album of college photos of sports teams, um, matriculation photos and so forth. And the archivist Robin Darwell Smith said, you're welcome to just come along and look through the photos and browse through them, which I did, and which is how I found um, the Khan Sahib photo outside. Um, and I just want to raise this 
this kind of issue that, um, again, it's kind of a similar issue to when I was looking through the registers, when you're looking out for an Indian surname, um, I was invariably looking for someone who had dark skin. Um, the, you know, the, the racial profiling that we're also um, aware of at the moment, this is what I was doing when I was looking through um, these photos, um, although at the bottom they would say who was in the position of this photo. So I just want to raise these kind of um, concerns and issues um, about research in general and about the research that, I, you know, that has come up along here. And just as I, as I close, I just want to say that despite perhaps this interaction, I mean, Jaipal Singh is a bit separate away. You know, some people might read into that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go into that. Um, and as Amitabh Ghosh mentioned in his experiences in the 1970s, there was racial prejudice, there was social segregation, there was distance between Indians and the British, even in the early 20th century. Um, the first Indian president of the Oxford Union was D.F. Karaka, elected in 1933. He was a Parsi from Bombay. And in the, his last session as president, he complained about the colour bar in Oxford and Britain generally. So these archives, these college registers, these, these minute books, these photos, only give a small part of the story, just a trace. I've only talked about three or four Indians, students in the early 20th century. And we look, if we think back to that graph that I showed at the beginning, um, with an average of about 50 Indian students every year for about 40 years, um, what happened to them? What, what are the traces of those people? Um, some of them did become prominent. They, they took up big positions, and we know more about them. But there are very many who didn't join the hockey team, who didn't get involved in the SS society, um, who are perhaps just a, a scribbled name on a college register. And I just want to end with that kind of open question.